You know what's been said? God's workmen come and go, but God's work continues. And that's what we find in tonight's chapters. A transition takes place. Elijah the prophet passes the baton on to his protege, Elisha. But that's not the only transition we encounter tonight. Remember where we are on the historical timeline. King Ahab was killed at the end of 1 Kings. In his place, his son Ahaziah reigns over Israel in the north. And the Moabites take this transition going on in Israel as an opportunity to throw off their yoke and gain their independence. That's what we find in verse 1. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Moab had been under Israeli control since the days of David. But Israel has weakened, and they see the death of Ahab as their opportunity to regain some independence. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. Perhaps Ahaziah had taken a stroll up on the roof. And there may be a little patio up on the roof and all. And he was strolling along on the rooftop and he fell through one of the skylights. We don't know, but perhaps. How it happened, we're not sure, but it was an awful tumble. For he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. The new king is laid up in the ICU. He's got contusions. He's suffering from a concussion. He's wondering if he'll ever walk again. But guess where he turns? Oh my, he falls again. This fall, though, is far more devastating than the first For he sends messengers to the Philistines to inquire of their false god, Beelzebub. You know, it's interesting at Mount Carmel, Elijah revealed the impotence of Baal, the Baal of the Sidonians. But you see, there were dozens of Baals. Remember, we talked last week about the ancient concept of local deities. Baal means Lord. And there were many false gods and idols in the Middle East that went by the name of Baal. Every community, in essence, had their own Baal. Evidently, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, had rejected the Baal of the Phoenicians when Elijah had, you know, confronted them there in the showdown on Mount Carmel. But instead of turning to the true God, he now worships the Baal of the Philistines, Beelzebub. This word Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. It's of note, this is the name that Jesus used of Satan in Matthew chapter 12. Lord of the Flies. Flies, of course, carry disease. So whenever a person became sick or injured or a plague, a mysterious illness swept across the people, they were tempted to call on Beelzebub. Or the Lord of the Flies. This is obviously what Ahaziah is thinking. Now his messengers are on the way to the land of the Philistines. When God sends a messenger of his own to intercept them. Verses 3 and 4 record God's word to Ahaziah. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore thus says the Lord, you shall come down from the bed 
to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. God is a jealous God. And he's insulted when his people seek wisdom from other gods. I think this is how God feels when we run to the gods of this age for help. How does the church justify in turning to worldly consultants for spiritual wisdom? How do we justify putting our trust in a secular counselor who doesn't even know God? Do we not have a God who is able to supply us all the wisdom that we need? I believe God's word and God's spirit is totally sufficient to meet your needs and my needs. God will provide us peace of mind and emotional healing and soul satisfaction if we'll trust him. So Elijah departed, and when the messengers returned to him, to King Ahaziah, he said to them, Why have you come back? And so they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go return to the king who sent you and say to him, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And of course, Ahaziah gets angry. He asks in verse 7. Then he said to them, What kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered him, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And the king knows immediately who that is. He said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. We got, we got a picture of a hairy man. That's just Johnny Damon. That's not Elijah, but they probably looked a lot alike. That bushy hair, you know, this big bushy beard and all. Elijah was like John the Baptist. He was the antithesis of fashion and style, you know, and grooming. He was this wild man, bushy hair, bushy beard. Verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. And so he went up to him, and there he was, sitting on the top of a hill. And he spoke to him, man of God, the king has said, come down. (laughs) And Elijah is about to prove that it's a little harder to arrest him than they thought. Ahaziah is not the only thing that falls in this chapter, as we'll soon see. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. That's a bold statement. But look what's next. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. They get torched. Guys, I'm telling you, you always burn out when you fight against the will of God. You always do. Verse 11. Then he sent him another fifth captain of 50 with his 50 men. And he answered and said to him, Man of God, thus has the king said, Come down quickly. So Elijah answered and said to them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. God doesn't like the job the police force is doing, and so he fires them all. (laughs) Fiery judgment falls from heaven. Now, just in case you think this might be a good way to deal with your enemies, your boss walks in tomorrow, you know, 
Don't call down fire from heaven. Let's remember what Jesus told James and John. You remember when the Samaritans refused to let Jesus pass through their territory? You remember those hot-headed disciples, James and John? They wanted to duplicate Elijah's miracle. In Luke chapter 9, verse 54, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? That's a great way to deal with our enemies, Lord. Let's just fry them. Oh, boy. There have been times when I have wanted to call down fire from heaven and fry some enemies. But Jesus rebuked them. You remember, he said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You see, Elijah had a ministry of judgment. But 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we have a different kind of ministry. Believers in Jesus have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Our job is not to call down fire from heaven, but to extend God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Oftentimes, we too forget what manner of spirit we are of. Always remember, Elijah didn't save anybody. At the end of Elijah's life, he goes to heaven in a fiery chariot. At the end of Jesus' life, he goes to a cross. As Christians, we're not disciples of Elijah. We're of a different spirit. You and I are followers of Jesus Christ. We do need to call fire down from heaven, but not on other people. We need to call fire down on ourselves. We need to seek the fire of Pentecost. Let's call down the fire of the Holy Spirit. The fire that purifies and fuels and forges and burns away the cords of bondage. Hey, when God says, well done, good and faithful servant, let's make sure it's a description of our godly life, not the degree to which the sinners have been cooked. Verse 13 tells us. Now again, he sent a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. Captain 1 ended up a crispy critter. Captain 2 commanded a battalion barbecue. And now this third captain, he's learned. He changes his approach. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, Man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of 50s with their 50s. But let my life now be precious in your sight. Captain 3 doesn't want a three-peat. He wises up and he pleads for his life. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. And so he arose and he went down with him to the king. This captain of 50 was more Elijah's prisoner than was Elijah his prisoner. And then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Good question. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And what a courageous man, this Elijah. Here he goes toe-to-toe with the king, and he pronounces God's judgment. King, you're going to die. And so Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. 
And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place. In the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And this is where you need that little sheet that I gave you a couple of weeks ago because it's starting to get real confusing. The tracking kind of gets muddled because now all of a sudden, both kings, the king in Judah and the king in Israel, are both named Jehoram. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And 2 Chronicles 20 is the chapter that mentions Ahaziah. You need to understand something about life. Life is not just a race. Life is a relay race. And the winning team in a relay isn't necessarily made up of the fastest or the strongest runners. You've got to be able to pass the baton. If a relay is to be successful, there has to be a clean pass. If you can't pass the baton, your team won't win. And this is what we need to realize about Christianity. So what if I love the Lord? So what if I know His Word? So what if I walk His ways? If I don't pass that legacy down to my kids and to my friends and the people who are looking to me, I can't really say I've won the race if I don't pass the baton. Well, in chapter 2, Elijah departs from this earth, but before he does, he passes the baton to Elisha. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Apparently, Elisha sort of sensed that Elijah was going to be taken to heaven. He's about to lose the man that he's been following for 10 years now. And he's not going to abandon him. And so they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. I don't want to talk about it. And then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now I want you to understand what's happening here. Elijah, he knows the rigors and hardships that come with ministry. Elisha did too. He served alongside Elijah. Serving the Lord is no walk in the park. Both men know this. And so before he's taken to heaven, Elijah goes on a final stroll that's designed to test his protege's calling. He walks with Elijah from Gilgal to Bethel, now to Jericho, and and even beyond this to the Jordan River. And at each stop, Elijah asks Elisha if he wants to follow. At each stop, he gives him the option of staying behind. You know, count the cost before you you take over. You, You want to make sure that you're truly called to what I'm about to appoint you to do. Remember, before being Elijah's disciple, Elisha had been a successful farmer. And all along this last lap, Elijah gives Elisha the opportunity to bow out gracefully. Just sort of slip away if you want to. Return home to your former occupation. Nobody's pressuring you into this. But each time 
Elisha agrees to push on. He reaffirms his commitment to press on in ministry to the finish, as we'll see. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho, they came to Elisha and they said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And so he answered, Yes, I know. Keep silent. And then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And so the two of them went on. Elijah is passing on the baton and Elisha is passing the test. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now, you've you got to understand, Elijah, he was the prophet of the prophets. The sons of the prophets were all in school hoping to be prophets. They were all apprentices. They were all in prophet school. Everyone knows now that a monumental transition is about to occur. And so you got all these junior prophets. They're standing on the bank and they're trying to witness what happens. I mean, it's, just, it's like Billy Graham is standing there about to appoint his successor. And everybody wants to see, see it happen. Verse 8. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and he struck the water. And it was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over. On dry ground. Wow. Elijah includes Elisha on this miracle. That's important. They whack the water with his mantle and it splits apart supernaturally. And they both walk through the riverbed on dry ground. And Elijah, he says to his sidekick. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And this is a marvelous request. Elisha has seen enough of Elijah to become well aware of his own inadequacy. How is he going to follow in this mighty man's footsteps? And he knew that God's work had always been done by God's spirit, that Elijah had relied upon God's spirit. In fact, he knew that he would need a double scoop of anointing. A double dip of Holy Spirit power. And so he asks for a double portion. He wants twice the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Twice the power that God had bestowed upon Elijah. And you know, that's exactly what he gets. It's interesting that Elisha ministers 50 years from 850 to 800 B.C., twice as long as Elijah. And he also does twice the number of Elijah's recorded miracles. At least recorded miracles, they're twice, twi- Elisha's are twice the number of Elijah's. Elisha not only inherited Elijah's ministry, but he took it to new heights with this double portion of God's Spirit. But there was one contingency on this anointing. So Elijah said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. In other words, Elisha's double portion of the Holy Spirit is contingent on him seeing Elijah's takeoff. It was necessary for the younger man to continue to the end. 
to pass this test that he was under? Would you stay committed? Would you follow through? Only a man willing to walk in Elijah's footsteps could be trusted with Elijah's power. And this is a lesson for you and me. We all want the power demonstrated by godly men around us. But are we willing to cultivate the goodness and the endurance that's needed to handle that power? This is the question God asks us. Will we stick with it to the end? Verse 11 records Elijah's blast off. Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Imagine a twister sweeps down and sucks up Elijah. Inside the wall of wind, there's a real live chariot of fire that swoops down and knocks Elisha back. The vehicle then fetches Elijah and takes him to heaven. The chariot being pulled by horses, probably Mustangs. You know, we get the idea that God sent a heavenly limo to fetch Elijah. But what happened was really more profound. Ezekiel chapter 1 records the prophet's vision of God's throne. And Ezekiel sees God's throne sitting on the back of angels. Or cherubim. In other words, God's throne is a mobile throne. A throne chariot, we could call it. We know that the Ark of the Covenant was a type of God's throne. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 18, there the Ark of the Covenant is referred to as a chariot. Psalm 18, verse 10 tells us that God rode upon a cherub and flew upon the wings of the wind. I believe that the fiery chariot that escorted Elijah to heaven was none other than the throne of the living God. God revved up his throne, his throne chariot. And he came personally to take Elijah to heaven. How profound. This makes Elijah one of only two men in the Bible who never died. And who was the other man to escape death? You should know if you were here this morning. Enoch, Genesis chapter 5 verse 24 tells us, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. You know, Revelation chapter 11 speaks of two men who appear on earth to testify of Jesus in the last days. Of course, they're killed by the Antichrist, but then resurrected by God. And some people hypothesize that those two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch. They have come back, you know, to fulfill that role. Of course, the New Testament speaks of another group, yet future, who will never die. Any guesses on who that might be? (laughs) Me (laughs) and you, the church that's alive at the time of the rapture. Oh, Lord Jesus, may it be tonight. I hope you're expecting to be one of them. Verse 12, and Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father. This is a mind blower, you know. It's not every day you see a fiery chariot come from heaven and scoop up your friend. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. And so he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces, a sign of astonishment. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. 
When Elijah was caught up to heaven, his mantle or the coat of the prophet, the sign of his authority fell to the earth. And then Elisha took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. And I like what my friend David Guzik says. He says, the mantle did not fall from heaven and rest on Elisha's shoulders. He had to decide to pick it up and put it on. Elijah's ministry was one of great power, but it came with great pressure and responsibility. This was the the reason for that little stroll before he disappeared. It was to test Elijah to make sure that he would continue and persist and follow. And Elisha, he whacked the water just like Elijah did, and he said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? It wasn't a question. It was more an invitation. God, show up for me like you did for my friend. And when he had also struck the water, it was divided this way and that. And Elisha crossed over. Elijah's last miracle became Elisha's first miracle. Elisha now knows that the God of Elijah will be his God. And will work miracles through him. You know, there are many similarities between Elijah and Elisha. And you know, the, the best way to differentiate them, J comes before S, just so you can keep it straight in your head. You know, Elijah comes first, Elisha comes after. But though there were many similarities between them, there were also several notable differences. Elijah's miracles revealed God's fiery judgments. Whereas we'll find Elisha's miracles conveying more God's grace. Elijah's first miracle was to turn off the water, shut up the heavens. Elisha's first miracle is to heal the waters at the spring in Jericho. It was the same spirit that rested on Elisha that rested on Elijah. But the same spirit works in different ways through different people. We find the same to be true of God's work in us. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about different gifts within the body of Christ that manifest, different manifestations, different gifts. Same spirit, but different gifts. Each of us will have our own style, our own emphasis in the body of Christ. You may be a fiery Elijah. You may be a laid-back Elisha. But the same Holy Spirit uses both types of people. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and they bowed to the ground before him. And then they said to him, Look now, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord is taking him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send anyone. Don't be silly. Elisha knew where he had gone. God didn't drop him off on some mountaintop somewhere. What's the deal with that? He was obviously in heaven. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, go ahead and send them. You want to do a manhunt? Do a manhunt. Therefore, they sent 50 men and they searched for three days, but did not find him. They come back empty. And when they came back to him, for he had stayed in Jericho, he said to them, I told you so. Did I not say to you, do not go? Elisha's ministry begins in Jericho. And the town of Jericho owes him a tremendous debt. Go to Jericho today and you can drink 
of the fresh spring water there in Jericho. You wouldn't be able to if it were not for Elisha. For then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please notice the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is... Love the city. The city's beautiful. These palm trees all over the places, right down there near the Jordan River. Jericho is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful city, but the water supply is bad. And the ground barren. And he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And so they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water, to the spring. And he cast in the salt there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. Elisha put salt in a new bowl. It's just a simple additive. And then he takes it to the spring that feeds the town's water supply. And this is what Jesus does in us. His cure for us is simple. He puts his love and his grace in our hearts. He he has an additive that he adds to us, the Holy Spirit. And, And it revolutionizes us. God casts in the salt at the headwaters of our life. He changes our very nature. He adds his love and his grace to our nature. In essence, he purifies our spirit, the spring that feeds all the other avenues and tributaries of our life. Our thoughts, our plans, our ambitions, our deeds, it all springs from our spirit. And so what does Jesus do? He goes straight to the source, to the spirit, to the spring. And there he adds his grace and his love and his Holy Spirit. And from the spring, when you purify the spring, then you purify the rest of the water supply. Jesus changes the whole man by cleaning up the spring. And so the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Now verse 23 is an interesting story. Then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city, some youth group whose youth pastor fell asleep or something, you know, and he his kids take off and up to some mischief and they come up from the city and they mock him. And they say to him, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Evidently, Elijah was a hairy man, but Elisha was just the opposite. He was as bald as a bowling ball. Then he came up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head, you bald head. And so he turned around and he looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. You might say it was a grisly judgment. Now, let me share with you a few thoughts here in defense of Elisha, because I know some of you are thinking, how, some of you moms are thinking, how cruel. Our, the dads are, go get them, go get them. Where can, I, where can I hire those bears? Where can I lease the bears? for? No. But you moms are all crying. Let, let me defend Elisha a bit. First of all, don't think he was jumping on preschoolers. The word translated youth was used of Joseph at the age of 39. 
It refers to an older person, an older youth. Here's what happens here. This is a gang of smart aleck teenagers, and they're hassling the prophet of God. And don't think they were just mocking Elisha. There was more to it than that. Elijah was hairy. They were pointing out Elisha's baldness. In essence, they were denying God's calling upon Elisha's life. They were saying, you've got no right to take over in Elijah's place. You're not the prophet he was. And notice too, it doesn't say that they died. They may have, just as they were mauled, they they may have gotten away with some cuts and scrapes and, you know, you know. It was grisly, but they didn't say that they died. It's clear, though, that Elisha would not have had the patience to be a good youth pastor. That is certainly clear. His youth group would end up like picnic baskets for Yogi, you know. Of course, if Elisha was your youth pastor, you'd certainly think twice about toilet paper in his yard on Friday night, but... The real lesson to be learned here is that we do need to be careful. We do need to be careful about how we speak and how we talk about people who are serving the Lord. That's apparent. When you go home and roast the pastor over Sunday lunch, and I know you've done that before. Or when you laugh at something he does, or you see the little bald spot on the back of his head, oh, he's getting older, he's 49 now, ha, ha, ha. Or when you make fun of his inability to tell a good joke, watch out for the wild bears. I got a man-eating Labrador retriever at home. Seriously. No one is above legitimate criticism, myself included. But make sure your critique is over valid and biblical issues. Picky, trivial criticisms are simply unbearable to God. Verse 25. Watch what you say. (laughs) Then he went from there to Mount Carmel... And from there, he returned to Samaria. And, it, you know, it's interesting to me that when he leaves the area of the Jordan, the first place Elisha visits is Mount Carmel, the site of Elijah's greatest victory. Perhaps he went there on a retreat, you know, for inspiration, maybe for preparation. Well, in chapter 3, Israel, Judah, and Edom, they all team up to fight against the Moabites. And when the allies run out of water, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, he calls for Elijah. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. 
But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And so King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. In 1868, a German missionary by the name of F.A. Klein discovered a bluish basalt stone, four foot by two foot by 14 inches thick. It was found in the Moabite city of Debon, 20 miles east of the Dead Sea. It dates back to the 9th century B.C. Today it's on display in Paris at the Louvre. It's an ancient monument called the Moabite Stone. Perhaps you've heard of it. Or the Eel. It basically describes the facts of 2 Kings chapter 3. But what's interesting about it, it does so from the Moabite perspective. And it confirms conclusively the historicity, the historical reliability of this chapter. Well, Misha rebels against Israel. And Jehoram musters an army. Verse 7. Then Jehoram went... And he sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I'll go up. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. Then he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, By way of the wilderness of Edom. They're going to come down through the Judean wilderness, and they're going to circle around the bottom of the Dead Sea, and they're going to attack the Moabites from the south. 